I'm very excited to tell you about American Giant. They're a company that makes clothing right here in the USA. They started with one great hoodie that turned into a 12-year journey to make more items here in the United States. And in the process, bring solid, dignified work to farm and factory towns across the country. I wanted to particularly highlight their work in supporting Rescue 22. The Rescue 22 Foundation provides the highest quality task-trained service dogs in order to address the mental and physical health of our nation's combat veterans. And American Giant has created a limited edition Rescue 22 classic full-zip hoodie to help fund a dog for a veteran who needs one. They're available on sale exclusively through American-Giant.com. I love companies that make it their mission to create jobs here in America, making high-quality products just like American Giant. Go to AmericanGiant.com slash Jack and get 20% off with the discount code Jack at checkout. Once again, that's American-Giant.com slash Jack. This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is Julian Rademeyer. He's an award-winning author, investigative journalist, and one of the key figures in the global fight against organized crime's illegal wildlife trade. He serves as director of the Organized Crime Observatory for East and Southern Africa at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. His book is called Killing for Profit, and his latest report is called The Gray Zone, Russia's Military, Mercenary, and Criminal Engagement in Africa. And now, without further ado, here's Julian. How you doing? Good to see you. How you doing? Oh, my yeah, goodness. Good to see you too. Yeah, it's been, it's been a, a while. Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, it's it seems like one day because it's been like a long day for me since we last talked, like two years ago. But uh, it's, it's great to see you. You've been up to a lot too, though, which I want to talk about but uh where are you right now are you uh you at home yeah yeah in uh in johannesburg in south africa yeah okay got it got it oh you got the cup nice nice coffee mug i'm gonna ask you about uh <laughs> i like it uh the global and for people who missed that who are watching uh, might be watching uh global initiative against transnational organized crime um and i want to talk to you specifically about wagner group and i saw that in february article and so that's when i reached out and wanted to talk to you about uh, about them and the report that mm. you guys issued but uh a lot's happened since then with that with that group so we can get up to date though but before we jump into that and for people who haven't seen our our first podcast um how did you get involved with the global initiative against transnational organized crime what was the path to uh be working there yeah so i mean as you know, I, I started life as a journalist um, and uh, ended up working on a lot of issues related to, to organized crime. Um, and that led me into an investigation eventually into, oddly enough, rhino horn trafficking and, and some of the illicit networks that were involved in that. And through that, I've been involved, well, gradually more and more involved with the, the Global Initiative, initially doing some, some contracting work for them. Um, and today I'm, I'm heading up our work in East and Southern Africa, uh, which looks at a range of illicit economies from drug trafficking to arms trafficking, uh, you know, uh, looking at environmental issues, illegal wildlife trade, and so on and so forth. Um, and Wagner was in some ways a natural element of that. You know, here was a group 
um, an organization which clearly met some of the definitions of the Transnational Organized Crime Network or syndicate. The U.S. actually have designated them as such. Um, there's some debate around why they chose that rather than the terrorist organization. Um, but certainly, I mean, it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating entity to, to look at. No, it, it really is. I've written about them in my book, specifically their involvement in Africa, um, yeah. obviously in a, in a fictional sense. Um, but yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know it's it, because it is fascinating. And uh, there's so many tentacles and the business structure is is fascinating. But um, but recently you guys also uh, released uh, your latest statistics on organized crime, specifically in South Africa, moving them from number 21 on the previous list to number seven. Um, so what's contributed to that uh, decline? So I think, I think you know, what, what we're seeing globally, not so much um, in South Africa, but I can speak about that too, is we're seeing a fragmentation that's taking place. We're seeing, you know, greater instability, uh, more and more countries that are dealing with, you know, with issues of systemic and embedded organized crime. Uh, you know, I was recently in Ecuador, which... Uh, is a country that for many years escaped the horrors of of the drug trafficking networks in Colombia and Mexico. And now they've had a presidential candidate um, assassinated. So, you know, this is an issue that's growing in many countries. Um, South Africa, we've had years of political abuse of the, of the police, uh, maladministration, widespread corruption, uh, skills that have been draining out of, of particularly in law enforcement, but also the National Prosecuting Authority and others. And that's led to a terrifying situation where you have the emergence of parallel illicit economies, particularly in a place where you have one of the most unequal countries in the world. You know, South Africa, uh, massive unemployment and poverty, um, great extremes and a divergent of, a divergence of extremes between rich and poor. And within that, you're seeing uh, parallel illicit economies emerge, you know, everything from what we call uh, cash and transit heists, you know, cash fans being attacked by militarized gangs of 20 strong, uh, you know, uh, many of them with prior military training, to uh, bombings of ATM machines, to uh, extortion rackets, to, you know, drug flows, massive corruption, uh, paralyzing the, the state-run power entity. Um, 70 murders a day in the country. Um, and, you know, you've got a situation where uh, the police are capable of solving around 15% of those murders. So it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's, uh, that was 15% for, uh, for people out there to, to put... To, yeah, uh, one five, that one five, My not fifty. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, and for people who haven't read your yeah. your book, Killing for Profit, we talked about that on the the first podcast. It's fascinating mm -hmm. book, and people should pick that up. But also follow you on Twitter because the things that you retweet, or I guess it's called X now, so follow you on X. But the things that you re X um, are, are fascinating because they are not typically things that uh, people are are reading here specifically in the United States, yeah. you're, you're reposting things or retweeting things from, from Europe and from Africa. Um, and so I've, so everybody should follow you for sure. And also um, follow the global initiative against transnational organized crime also on, on Twitter and the social, social channels and check out the website as well, which is where I downloaded and printed uh, the gray zone, which I want to get to in a second. But as I was following mm -hmm. you, there's some other things I wanted to, to talk about because when I, when I, when, when I see that you've tweeted something, I'm always like, Oh man, what, what is this about? Cause I, there's some incredible things that I was not even 
aware of, uh, other than mm. you know the, the corruption and the things that, that uh, uh, specific to, to Africa that you, you you do talk about. But this uh, illegal gold mines, uh, this people living yeah. underground for a year, one guy two years, um, that was absolutely fascinating. Um, and yeah. miners known as um, uh, Zamba Zambas, which is a Zulu term meaning take a chance. And um, yeah, it, I mean, absolutely incredible. Uh, also 40% of gold ever mined comes from South Africa. I didn't realize that, mm. but mm. Uh, can you talk about those illegal gold mines? Because I found that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's crazy in a way, because if you look at, you know, illegal mining or artisanal mining in Africa, most of it is open cast mining. So people, you know, above ground, uh, working what's left in many areas or trying to get as much gold as they can. We'll probably talk a bit later about, you know, Sudan, for instance, which, um, and the Central African Republic, but that's very much sort of, you know, above ground mining. In South Africa, the mines, the gold seams run incredibly deep, you know, sometimes two kilometers underground, even deeper than that. Um, and the illegal mining that you're seeing here is people who are flocking, some of them former miners, some of them connected to, to uh, you know, individuals who had mined previously. These are mines that are considered fallow, you know, that by the mining companies in some cases. In other cases, they're actually active gold mines. And you have literally hundreds, thousands of people getting into those mines. So either the active mines or, or others. I mean, I've seen surveillance footage shot at one gold mine where you have, you know, it's almost like a caterpillar. It's night, night vision shot from a distance and around 300 people lining up on a hilltop trying to get into that mine through um, air vents and shafts that were dug in the 19th century, you know, late in the 1880s. Um, you know, other mines, you've, there have been accounts of up to 5,000 people underground at a time. Um, and there's a lot of violence associated with it because the, the pickings are slim. There are rival groupings, many of them from the kingdom of Lesotho, um, who have access to military weapons, weapons they've obtained from, from the Lesotho military. And you have firefights underground between these groups. Um, and then the bodies are pulled up to the surface dumped on the, you know, dumped on a road for the police to to collect. Uh, very often, you know, they're never identified. No one knows who they are or where they came from. Um, and so, you know, again, it's this kind of situation where you have, you know, these guys eking out a living in incredibly dangerous conditions underground. Um, and these bosses at the top who getting, you know, extremely rich, uh, you know, the gold itself uh, serving a purpose for money laundering, much of that gold going out to to the UAE to Dubai, um, so it's this it's this incredible sort of illicit economy that sprung up. You know, you hear the stories, for instance, to, just to get food underground, like a KFC bucket, uh, two thousand rand, so which is probably these days um, sadly around a hundred US dollars, um, but just to get that bucket underground to feed people. Um, so you know, networks that have been set up um, to to support these mining groups. You know, I probably shouldn't have asked you about that because as soon as I, w I read that, uh, I was immediately thinking about future future books and plot lines and uh, action sequences and, and all that because, wow, fast thousands of people underground, yeah. some for months, one guy a year, another guy two years underground. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously no safety <laughs> precautions being taken, uh, ventilation. I mean, yeah. it's just, and the, the when I think one of the videos that you're talking about is that a, a a company or an entity went to see what was going on 
in these old mines and mm. they dropped a camera down and they find people, mm. uh, as they which they yeah. weren't expecting and then dead bodies. And, and, uh, I mean, that was mm. just incredible. So people can go to your yeah, Twitter you, and just scroll you, down a little bit and find, uh, you know, the, where you link to all these, uh, these fascinating articles, but man, crazy. I mean, you only imagine they're surprised when they drop yeah. this camera down expecting to find an abandoned mine shaft. Mm. And all of a sudden they're, they're, mm. they're coming up on people living, not just working, but living. Yeah underground no the guys guys filming themselves you know they've got the guns they've taken television sets down down there um you know so they can watch dvds they've got booze down there um they you know taking sex workers down into the mine um i mean it's a whole sort of literally an underground economy um and you know people living there for extended periods of time that's absolutely incredible the the risks that get taken yeah. And it's, I mean, obviously not the first time this has been done. If, uh, for those who have been to Ukraine, uh, and been to Odessa and gone to the, uh, mm. uh the underground labyrinth under there, I used it in my, in my second novel, true believer, because I'd been there previously and, uh, and it fit into the, into the plot line, but, uh, Vietnam also, I mean, there, there's, uh, there multiple levels of cave system, tunnel mm. systems, uh, with whole it, cities underground, just like you, like you said, but I was not aware yeah, of it. Tunnels of Gucci. In South yeah. Africa. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, and, uh, well, Ron corruption in, uh, in Africa in general, I read something that you posted recently and it said that, uh, there was a security contract in the Northern Cape that cost them 90% of their emergency services budget. Mm. I mean, that yeah. systemic corruption going, I mean, Hey, uh, there's a lot of that going on around here too. Uh, it just mm. doesn't get highlighted. Um, but I mean, that 90%, yeah. 90%, that's a pretty big number. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrifying in a way because, you know, once your, your systems, your law enforcement agencies, your prosecuting authority are, are, are so eroded over time, how do they even respond to those kinds of challenges? You know, this is a health department budget. Um, and, you know, the emergency services who are not exactly operating at top form either. You know, the vehicles are old, they're falling apart, they need new vehicles in many cases. Um, but you've kind of got the situation where it's 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 a question of not just the theft of a small amount of a contract or, you know, basic kind of corruption. It's it's divided up, take as much as you can and, you know, keep going. Um, and I think that that is the really terrifying part. You know, in... in uh, you know, South Africa in the 1990s was very effective in dealing with transnational organized crime, dealing with uh, levels of corruption. I mean, we charged the former president with corruption. That case is still ongoing 20 years later. Um, but we've hit the point now where, you know, there are so many of these cases that it's paralyzing the country. Um, you know, last time I think we, we, we spoke, I was basically sitting in darkness with one light because... Our power grid, you know, levels of corruption there that have basically tripled that company. Um, you know, it's become a, a systemic threat. I mean, we argue in one of the reports you brought up recently about, uh, you know, facing organized crime here, um, that it's it's an existential threat to the country and to its democracy. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, what a fascinating part of the world. That's why I explore it so much in my books, because it gives me an excuse to, to do research and, uh, and go there and put boots on the ground. Um, yeah. But before we get to Wagner Group, I also wanted to ask you about, because it relates to Killing for Profit, your, your book, um, North Korean diplomats moving at least 18 rhino, oh, yeah. 19 elephant tusks from Botswana, or, and then plus their, their connections to South Africa. What's, uh, what's going on there? 
Yeah, I did. I mean, I did an investigation look at North Korean diplomats back in 2016, and there were a number of cases. Uh, there was one particularly famous case uh, that happened around then, uh, which set me off on that path of looking at it, was uh, a North Korean diplomat and a taekwondo master. And, and North Korea often uses taekwondo as a way to embed spies in other countries. And these two guys got arrested in Maputo and Mozambique, which is, uh, you know, on the on the on the east coast of Africa, just above South Africa. Um, they got arrested there with rhino horn and significant amounts of U.S. dollars in cash in the vehicle. Um, they both were subsequently released, ended up coming back to South Africa, and then vanished. The Taekwondo master has never been seen again, even though he was teaching a lot here and he was quite widely respected by his students. Um, and the diplomat was essentially, you know, PNG declared persona non grata and told never to come back. But North Korea has a very long history of smuggling rhino horn going back to the 1970s uh, and 1980s. And in Zimbabwe, um, there were numerous cases in the 1980s of them getting involved in that. Clearly, this has continued, you know, as they have become more and more cut off from the world and looking at, you know, it's not just rhino horn, it's gold, it's uh, it's various other types of minerals. It's moving fake cigarettes. It's moving cars that are bought by diplomats tax-free in countries. Um, so there's a whole illicit economy. And on top of that, obviously, is this the you know the insane extent of, of cybercrime that North Korea is involved in, you know, the hacking of Hollywood productions, for instance. You guys will remember that. Um, the you know the the scams, the looting of of, of banks. Um, so, you know, it's not surprising. I mean, this is just one other element. And and North Korean embassies in countries, there are a number in Africa, in the DR Congo, there's one in, in Pretoria and South Africa, are meant to be self-funding, meant to be self-sustaining. So this is how they go about doing it. I love talking to you because I get so many ideas for, for future novels, uh, or at least straight to video B movies. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, and, uh, so this, this report that came out in February, 2023, uh, Mm. the gray zone. Um, so Russia's military mercenary and criminal engagement in Africa. Um, why did you title it the gray zone? So the gray zone is the, the name of a, Telegram channel that is affiliated to the Wagner Group, um, which is widely used, incredibly popular Telegram channel where many of their, uh, you know, their videos are shared, uh, you know, from combat operations to uh, to various other activities. But more than that, Wagner, in many ways, is unlike any other PMC or so-called mercenary group uh, that has emerged because they have their fingers in so many different pies. You know, this is not just an organization that's putting boots on the ground or an affiliation of organizations to be more correct i mean wagner as an entity doesn't really exist and and for a long time uh you know it was there were rumors circulating that there was some kind of pmc operating uh, this was now in 2014 in ukraine before it became acknowledged as an entity in its own right um but wagner is essentially a grouping of of uh, ex-special forces soldiers, um, Russian special forces. Uh, it's made up of multi, multiple layers of shelf companies, and it's involved in everything from politics to extraction of resources in, in many countries, uh, gold, diamonds, timber in particular, um, and you know influence operations at the behest of Russia. But unlike most uh, mercenary groups, it's not. They're not. These are not guns for hire. 
they work and operate ostensibly, or they did work and operate ostensibly at the behest of the Russian state and Russian military intelligence, the GRU. And their operations were sanctioned and, you know, they took on the risk. Certainly the the payment of people that worked for them was was um, conducted locally by, you know, their leadership. Um, but ultimately, as uh, the, the work that they did was 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 answerable to to the Russian state. Um, but they so they operate in this very much this kind of murky gray zone between licit and illicit economies. Um, and you know activities that are criminal, but activities that also have a veneer of of legitimacy. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating report, and so much has happened since since February twenty twenty three, which yeah. will which we will get to. Um, but uh, I guess at that time there were about fifty thousand um, Wagner Group operators, mercenaries fighting in in Ukraine mm. uh, when this this yeah. and then in Africa. They're involved gold smuggling, human rights abuses, exchanging mercenary services for access or payment in mineral resources, uh, security services to politicians, training government forces to combat rebel troops. They've made a movie. I forget which country it was. There was a yeah. movie, Just Sui Wagner, uh, and they had uh, T-shirts and the whole thing. Um, but uh, I made a couple, actually. Yeah, a couple movies. It was, it was crazy. I mean, it, yeah, it was a couple of movies. I mean. It, that that in many ways I think is what what worked for Wagner as a group. You know, um, there are there are a lot of other Russian PMCs, but they're much smaller. But Wagner built a brand, and they created these full-on feature movies. Uh, there's one called Tourist, uh, which is um, set in the Central African That's Republic, what I was thinking of, yeah. and you know it portrays them as heroes against um, the church and against the French who are sort of causing mayhem. They met another one about their their very ill-fated uh, involvement in, in Mozambique, uh, which again portrayed them as you know, heroes, these kind of stereotypical images of, you know, starving villages and, and African mothers, you know, begging them to help them. And they, you know, go off and heroically save the day. Um, I mean, the production values are not bad. The script is pretty cheesy. Um, <laughs> But, you know, they showed tourists to to a full stadium of 10,000 people and gave out, um, uh, gave out T-shirts. They produced, you know, all kinds of other propaganda material. And they've, they've really built the myth of, you know, this kind of heroic Russian force fighting against the bad guys. Interesting. And I saw a cartoon, I think, a moving graphic anyway, of uh, them defeating French zombies. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite a popular one, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you know, and 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 it did the rounds in you know Central African Republic. It's still you still see it on social media. Yeah, um, so they capitalized on you know France's growing unpopularity and its former colonies. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Um, and then, so January twenty twenty three, right before this report um, came out, the U.S. designated Wagner as a transnational criminal organization. And you mentioned mm. earlier the difference that they're between designating something a criminal organization and a terrorist organization. But uh, what impact did that have on their operations uh, worldwide, and then more specifically to Africa? Mm. Well, I think I think it would have allowed, you know, and it did allow for the imposition of further sanctions and sanctions on individuals. Um, you know, I, I said earlier that I think there's an argument to be made of of for them as a um, as potentially a terrorist organisation. The the UK government, for instance, have have taken the option of um, you know designate them as a as a terrorist organisation. 
Um, but I think the U.S. took a, quite a strategic decision there. They felt that by doing that, it would it would jeopardize their outreach and their involvement, and you know, basically stop the U.S. from being involved in in countries like the Central African Republic and Mali, and providing support there. Because if they did designate it, you know, a terrorist organization, that would have severely restricted that. Um, so I think it had the impact of of constraining their operations to some degree. Um, you know, and there's been a growing number of sanctions against various people in the Wagner Group, uh, including its its former leader Dmitry Prigozhin, or sorry, Yevgeny Prigozhin, um, and you know uh, that has had quite a uh, an an effort to try and sort of crack down on the group itself. Yeah. So yeah. Well, and speaking about uh, about the, the former leader. Um, can you talk about the con? Is it the Concord Company uh, or Concord and the web of businesses and interests across the world? In the report here and on the video you have on the the website, that is quite the web yeah. of associated businesses worldwide. It's fascinating. No, it's extraordinary. I mean, there, there are just so many companies that fall under that. So maybe I mean, I think let's go back a little bit. So you know, Prigozhin was um, basically. I mean, he was a guy who potentially had. Uh, a possible sort of sporting career as a as a skier, um, oh. something he was trying to get into when he was young. But he became something of a petty criminal uh, in Leningrad, later St. Petersburg. Um, and you know, he was. Um, I think he was sentenced at eighteen uh, for theft. And then a couple of years later, he he um, he and a couple of of fellow thugs kind of uh, mugged and robbed a woman at knife point. And he was sentenced to 13 years in prison. Once he got out of prison, he he claimed in one tale to have actually visited the U.S. and been inspired to set up a hot dog stand. Uh, so he brought in you know, St. Petersburg's first hot dog stands and set them up all over the city and made money selling hot dogs, kind of boiling them up in his house and then you know flogging them on the streets. Um, and then eventually he set up a restaurant uh, which was called the Old Customs House, which was quite popular um, with a certain set. And you've got to kind of remember this is, you know, 1990s St. Petersburg. The Soviet Union has collapsed. Um, there are, you know, there's the the economy is in a complete mess. Um, you know, uh, national debt is, is insane. You know, everything is falling apart, it seems. And within that circumstance, you had the, the emergence of a number of gangs and criminal groups, uh, sort of Russian mafia types. Um, and this war for control that took place, you know, there were car bombings, there were assassinations, you know, the levels of violence were absolutely crazy. And Prigozhin kind of capitalized on that, on that uncertainty and, you know, set up the restaurants and became something of a fixer. You know, he was connected in with the local underworld. He had the crime bosses, you know, coming to, to his restaurant. And he also had a guy who was then, you know, a little-known government official called Vladimir Putin. who started frequenting that restaurant, and they struck up a friendship. And then years later, after that, he then set up this Concord Management and Consulting Company, um, which again, you know, sort of capitalized on the restaurant business and a restaurant business, which ultimately led to him, uh, you know, serving Putin at the Kremlin, serving visiting foreign dignitaries. There's a famous photograph of. Uh, of President George Bush and his wife Laura, with uh, Prigozhin hovering in the background, serving up, you know, pouring some wine uh, when they met with Putin. 
And the Concord Consulting Company became this sprawling corporate entity with fingers and fires all over the place. Mm. Um, and, you know, in some ways it, it served as a cover for for the mercenary activity of Wagner, but it was also involved in supplying um, food to the Russian military, um, food which apparently was pretty grim. Uh, I'm not sure if it was MRAPs or whatever it was, but the soldiers were not particularly appreciative. Um, and so that put him in a place where he could grow into this this figure with access to power, with, you know, this company that was making millions. And, you know, as so many of the Russian oligarchs who, who rose up and sort of the newer oligarchs that or the newer multimillionaires who rose up, he found that he could provide services to the Kremlin. You know, if he took on a certain degree of risk, and he followed through and served the Kremlin's ideological purposes and did what they essentially wanted him to do. And they could, you know, have a hands-off, you know, we don't know who this guy is. Um, you know, he's just running his own company. He could make a hell of a lot of money. And that's how, you know, it grew from a catering business ultimately into, into a mercenary group, um, which in itself sounds completely bizarre and illogical. And it's the kind of thing you couldn't make up in, in any fiction. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, that that background is, I'm, gosh, there's a lot of books in there. And it only know. gets weirder. <laughs> and it only gets weirder. I want to wish veteran Wally King a very happy 100th birthday. And I want to thank everyone from that greatest generation, the World War II generation, who fought and sacrificed so much for the freedoms that we enjoy today. At Navy Federal Credit Union, every day is Veterans Day. That's why they're proud to have served the military community for over 90 years. Their employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are veterans themselves. They serve more than 2 million veterans, so they understand the needs of veterans. They provide resources like Best Careers After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life. They're a top VA home loan lender. They offer award-winning 24-7 stateside member service. Use the hashtag gratitude mission to thank a veteran and honor their service. Your service inspires ours. Learn more at navyfederal.org slash veterans insured by NCUA equal housing lender. Let me tell you about first form. They have amazing products. My personal favorites are the protein sticks and the micro factor daily nutrient packs. And why do I like them so much? Because First Form makes it super easy to get quality protein and nutrients on the go. And I always seem to be on the go. While their products are top-notch quality, what I like the most about them are their values. First Form is so much more than a supplement company. They are deeply committed to both American jobs and your personal well-being. At First Form, they value people. In fact, the only thing they've automated is a tape machine, a symbol of their dedication to providing jobs and making lives better. They care about employing people, nurturing their growth, and genuinely improving lives. Their mission is simple. First Form is there to help you reach your fitness and wellness goals. They believe in a partnership where, if you meet them halfway, they'll help you make progress. Go to firstform.com slash jackcar to receive free shipping on any orders over $75. That's one the number one, S-T-P-H-O-R-M dot com slash Jack Carr. Once again, that's one, the number one, 
stphorm.com slash Jack Carr and receive free shipping on any orders over $75. Well, let's talk about, we can talk about some of that. Um, but uh, Wagner Group in Africa, their strategy in Africa, and how does it correlate or support the interests of the Kremlin? So I think, you know, the, the Kremlin has for, for a very long time, and Russia has for a very long time, had extensive interests in Africa. I mean, Russia's first engagement with the continent dates back to the 19th century. You know, there was um, an initial um, an embassy set up in, uh, in uh, Morocco in the, in the 1860s. Um, if you look at Ethiopia, the connections there because of the sort of Eastern Orthodox tra- tradition, um, and you know, so but but Russia's expansion, its involvement, essentially came to an end when the when the Berlin Wall came down, and it faded. Then you know, Russia had bigger problems to deal with. Um, you know, it had a particular height in the seventies and eighties when it had been uh, involved in proxy wars in in southern Africa, for instance, in Angola and Mozambique. It had supported, uh, you know, various uh, liberation movements, the African National Congress, and various others. Uh, it was quite heavily involved in the Congo and other places, and it had built up built up relationships with African states that would endure. Um, and then you get to the point, you know, the wall collapses. Russia has much bigger problems on the home front, and that influence wanes over time. Um, and it's only around 2000 that Russia starts turning back towards Africa. And I think particularly under Putin, uh, that has grown in the sense that, you know, he he wants to see a return to the glory of what the Soviet Union once was. You know, he wants to see Russia rise up to what it once was as an, as an international power. And Africa has, and particularly now with the war in Ukraine and sanctions and essentially the you know the banishment of, of Russia from the world stage, Africa has become a very important part of that. Um, Africa also serves another important part in the sense that it gives access to resources. Um, you know, if you look at gold, if you look at diamonds. Um, although, you know, the results there have also been quite mixed for groups like the like the Wagner group. Um, they uh, you know, artisanal mining in Sudan, for instance, which they they got a big stake in, uh, doesn't produce as much gold as sort of deep, you know, gold mining operations. In fact, they were probably far more successful economically in Syria, where you know they gained access to oil fields, to you know, um, energy resources. Um, but that all eventually, you know, ultimately helps the state and feeds back at the state, and they become an arm. Uh, of the, you know, sort of Russian expansion uh, in Africa. And they became ultimately the sort of, you know, the, the leading form of, of, of Russian involvement in Africa. Um, and, you know, driving those, the, the political strategy, driving, you know, providing support for, for various governments from the Central African, Central African Republic to uh, Mali, to, to Libya. Um, and, you know, I think in that sense, they were really useful for Putin and his government um, as, as they developed. You gave me like five book ideas right there. So thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, when, you, when we talk specifically about... I need about... to stop doing this. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't. Uh, <laughs> Central African Republic, looking specifically at, at, at that, um, what would you say are their, the successes Wagner had there and their, and their failures? 
Well, I think I think the Central African Republic is you know is the example where Wagner really kind of um, developed their business model. Mm-hmm. I mean, they that was the place where you know they perfected what they would try in many other countries, um, and you know they developed close partnerships uh, with the uh, you know President uh, Tudera and various others, um, and much of those were partnerships that were done on a handshake, you know, um, and I think that we'll come to this a bit later, but that's what made Prigozhin so interesting as a businessman and as, uh, you know, the head of this of this grouping of fighters was that he set up these personal networks and he was very adept at keeping these personal networks going, these transnational networks going through various countries. And much of it was essentially done on a handshake. Mm. Um, and that's where they they built up their influence and where I think in many ways, you know, Wagner became so embedded in the state and, the, and in supporting the state in, in car that you could characterize it as a form of state capture. You know, there was, there was the military support. Uh, there was the, there were the military instructors who were on the ground to train elite troops. Um, there were, it was also, you know, the, the support that Wagner provided uh, on a political level with misinformation campaigns and disinformation campaigns. Um, and, you know, I think that that really, in many ways, was the ideal form of, of the Wagner model, uh, you know, one that they hope to roll out in many other countries. What do you think they studied to, to be so effective with those disinformation campaigns? Because um, they've done them throughout Africa, uh, if I'm not mistake. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there's tentacles to the, with the Russian internet agency. Um, and so where did they, where did they learn that? And, and how effective do you think it's, it's been mm. across the continent? So, I mean, you know, that's, that's again, why when you look at what Prigozhin was involved and in, you look at the scale of his activities, this wasn't just simply a, you know, um, a catering company that turned it to a mercenary company, you turned it to something else. I mean, this was, a network of influence around the globe. So, you know, the Internet Research Agency or Research Agency, which he uh, later admitted to being involved in in establishing, was um, effectively a troll farm that was set up in uh, in St. Petersburg. There were reports of around 500 or 1,000 people employed in a building there, and essentially their job was to, to write propaganda um, I actually jotted down a note earlier, um, you know, before before while well, looking at at background here. But one of the employees was employed by or was interviewed by the Washington Post, and he said, "I immediately immediately felt like a character in the book 1984 by George Orwell. Um, I was in a place where you have to write that white is black and black is white. Your first feeling when you ended up there was that you were in some kind of factory that turned lying, telling untruths into an industrial assembly line, and." The Internet Research Agency basically became that. They, you know, they started off in Ukraine doing disinformation camp operations there. Um, then they progressed and they moved into Syria. They moved into African countries. Um, and, you know, finally, you also see their, uh, their involvement in the United States um, and, you know, trying there. And they were, they were eventually were uh, indictments brought down. Um, against you know some of the people that were involved um, because of the fact that they tried to meddle in in the U.S. elections, um, I think the the there were around thirteen Russian nationals uh, 
who were indicted back in, in 2018. Um, and, you know, effectively trying to exacerbate political tensions and divisions in the U.S. and undermine democratic processes. And that's what they continue to do all over the place. They did that, you know, in a number of African countries. They did that in Madagascar. Um, and they were surprisingly effective at, at doing that. Yeah. And on else you asked you about October 2021, when the U.N. asked CAR, Central African Republic, to end their relationship with Wagner, citing human rights abuses, international law violations, arbitrary detentions, torture, disappearances, summary executions. Um, what impact did that have, the U.N. asking Central African Republic to end that relationship? Well, I think, I mean, I think that the, you know, the, the report unfortunately concluded that only uh, Russian courts were competent to judge them for those for those war crimes. Um, and, you know, it was, in many ways, I think it was the, you know, the wrong sort of message to send, because this was a group that would continue on from there um, and carry out, you know, would continue operating in, in CAR, uh, in the Central African Republic, um, but would then continue to commit other war crimes. You know, you'd need to look at Ukraine, but also at Mali, where, you know, dozens of people were massacred uh, by Malian, uh, you know, by by Wagner fighters and, and Malian troops. Um, so I think that that has been one of the big challenges. How do you hold these people accountable um, for the for the things that they have done? Uh, you know, and it's it's a systemic, it's a part of the the organization strategy. I think that it was interesting to see at one stage they sort of tried to um, or, or try to use similar tactics that you see, you know, with Islamic State, not not on the same scale, but by you know posting videos of atrocities to inspire terror. Um, you know, there's the video that's done the rounds of you know one of their one of the Wagner fighters, for instance, who. Um, uh, was, uh, you know, tried to defect from the organization and then was subsequently apprehended uh, by his members and they executed him on camera with a sledgehammer. Um, and the sledgehammer then became the symbol of this organization and part of the, the mythos of this organization. So, you know, I think that, you know, Wagner, um, the sanctions and the various efforts to try and get them to pull out have, have had a pretty mixed response. Uh, you know, certainly in Central African Republic, uh, in you know other parts of Africa where there's growing um, tensions with France, uh, you know Wagner were had had positioned themselves in such a way and done you know set themselves up with the right propaganda and they'd really created this this image of themselves that you know they were perceived as heroes in many ways by you know the ruling elites and and by the people that. Um, that they, you know, in, in, certainly in some of the main cities. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the, the sledgehammer because at some point along the line, they send a sledgehammer to the EU, uh, and, yeah. uh, fake blood on the handle. There's a photo mm. of it in here, in this is reported in a violin mm. case. I think it was even sent in a violin case. Um, which is yeah. pretty clever. What, uh, uh, and the violin is their symbol, you know, it's that kind of, because Wagner obviously named after Richard Wagner for, for your yeah. listeners. You haven't, uh, you know, don't know that. So yeah, I mean, the, you know, the violin case and the sledgehammer, you know, those are the two iconic symbols of, of the group. Yep. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> um, so 
Progosian. We talked a little bit about him, and of course, yeah. he was uh, recently killed. Um, what has changed? Let's talk about the lead up to that uh, and yeah. falling out with the Kremlin, with Putin. What was happening in Ukraine? What do you think they were trying to accomplish? Did they accomplish anything close to what they were trying to? Can you unravel that mess for mm. us? I will do my best um, <laughs> because it's kind of a convoluted and involved one. But um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I think Wagner became really useful to to the Kremlin in Ukraine in the sense that you know here were hardened fighters, many of them from special forces. You know, the commander who was also killed with. Uh, with uh, Prigozhin was this guy, uh, Dmitry Utkin, uh, who was most famous for having sort of two SS uh, slashes tattooed on his, on his, um, uh, on his shoulder blades, um, you know, had been involved in a GRU special forces unit, uh, Russian military intelligence special forces unit. Um, so you had people like that. And in fact, Wagner was named after Utkin, uh, his call sign. Uh, in in Syria was Wagner, um, and you know, and in in Ukraine itself in the 2014. So, um, so it drew those kinds of people. But then beyond that, they moved into in 2022, and for the first time, you saw Prigozhin admit that he was uh, the head of the Wagner group, something he'd always denied, um, recruiting prisoners in Soviet prisons and giving them an option. You know, basically you come fight in Ukraine with us uh, and if you if you survive that, you will get a pardon and you can go home. And there were some kind of crazy people. I was actually reading a piece this week about this one guy who had been uh, a military guy, um, had clearly suffered quite a lot of, of uh, trauma in uh, conflicts you've been involved in, uh, and uh, you know, had been sort of acting out quite violently, and that ended him in him murdering his girlfriend and putting her through a meat grinder to get rid of the body. Uh, yeah, this was one of the guys who was um, who was uh, taken up by Wagner. He's only he's recently come home from fighting in the war in Ukraine, um, and you know they. They had the cannon fodder that they could use, so they would use the the prisoners uh, in these sort of wave attacks. You know, very um, old style, uh, you know, war approaches, but use these prisoners in these in these waves, and they would get killed on mass. And then the more professional Wagner fighters would go in on the rear end, um, and they try and overwhelm you know the Ukrainians in that way. So it became, you know, I think for for Putin and them, who the military were struggling in Ukraine, they clearly weren't taking the ground. You know, they they thought this was going to be a three week operation, and it's still going on today. Um, and they just did not expect the resistance that they got. And the you know the Russian military, um, by all accounts, is you know poorly equipped, poorly trained, poorly led. Um, and suddenly you had this fighting force that actually had a lot of experience. Um, who had commanders who knew what they were doing, knew you know how they how they could strategize and how they could take territory, um, and that made them heroes in many senses. But it also you know um, there was this long running battle between um, between Prigozhin 
and Russia's military and Russia's defense minister and the head of the military. And much of that also had to do with the fact that, you know, his, his guys were not getting the ammunition that he said they needed. And there's a famous video which sort of emerged, uh, I, I think it was in 2022, um, where you have Prigozhin standing surrounded by the bodies of dead Wagner fighters, you know, dozens of bodies, um, and literally screaming and ranting at the camera about how you know his men had been led to the slaughter by the Russian military, and how they need to give him uh, ammunition, or you know this is this is going to keep happening, um, and I think. Putin was happy to let that play out. You know, he was happy. Um, I think he, his style in many ways is sort of a divide and rule. So he likes playing people off against each other. But I think the turning point came when, you know, Prigozhin became more and more unstable, it seemed. And then ultimately when it emerged that Wagner was going to be incorporated into the, uh, into the Russian military, uh, then led his famous march from Moscow, uh, not to overturn Putin, but to try and overturn the the military generals or confront the military generals um, who were going to absorb Wagner and who he'd been fighting with for for so long, and that was completely unheard of. And it was embarrassing. It was, you know, it was the first real sort of challenge to Putin's authority in so long um, to have these guys, you know moving into Russia, taking over a military base, shooting down Russian military he helicopters, uh, you know, suddenly, you know, having been victorious in Ukraine and then turning around and heading home. And that was a very real threat. But I think, I think there's a debate and a discussion about, you know, a lot of people do see this as, you know, Putin taking revenge. I mean, Prigozhin's plane was blown out the sky, uh, most likely with a bomb planted on board, um, by KGB operatives exactly two months to the day that he started that that move on on Moscow. Um, but I think that you know I think that this sort of idea that that is solely a a um, Putin seeking revenge is probably a little short-sighted. Putin's a lot more strategic than that. Yes, he likes to serve up revenge cold and we've seen that with you know the murders of people in various countries, the UK and others. Um, you know, opposition activists who've been jailed, poisoned, and so on and so forth. But in this one, there was there was a very real need to take over uh, Prigozhin's assets in Africa, and I think that what you know Prigozhin initially was, uh, as as the story went, was forgiven by Putin. He was allowed to go to neighboring Belarus, um, and you know, essentially, the idea was that he would disappear. Um, you know, he would he shut down the Internet Research Agency. His soldiers were you know, demobilized. They put in a tented camp in, in Belarus. And basically, he was expected to go away quietly, but he didn't. Uh, what he kept doing was traveling back and forth to Africa and visiting those areas where he had uh, influence. So, you know, in, in the weeks leading up to his death, and there's actually a video that, that uh, was published, there have been extracts of this video published over several months, but a much longer version that was published uh, this weekend, showing Prigozhin on his final African trip, traveling from the Central African Republic uh, to Mali, and, you know, meeting with people. Interesting, it's also one of the very few times that you see Dmitry Utkin, the guy with the uh, SS tattoos, on, on video. 
and various other Wagnerites and meeting with officials in those countries and clearly continuing his business operations. And there is a theory that that was the final push, that this was a guy who was not going to go away, that he was going to keep, you know, those those interests and that he was too unreliable and, and you know, needed to be done with. What's changed since his death? Is there a, a new leader doing similar things? Does Wagner continue to work just uh, with, a, with a few modifications or adjustments or what's uh, what's changed since his death? So what's interesting is um, last week, uh, Putin had a meeting with one of the former Wagner commanders, which was televised, uh, which created the, you know, the impression at least that this was a guy who was now on side with the Kremlin. It was, it was Putin and the, the defense minister and, and uh, one of the Wagner commanders uh, who'd been very senior in the organization um, and that he would now be running it. Um, and, you know, it's difficult to say exactly. There was a lot of speculation. For instance, some of the Wagner fighters would turn up in other PMCs that were more closely controlled by uh, the GRU and the Kremlin. Um, but there's now, you know, indications that Wagner fighters are, are returning to the fight in Ukraine, um, that many of them have been assigned to various units in the, in the Russian military, um, and that, you know, potentially under new leadership, um, they would continue to operate. I think the other interesting element of all of this was that in the months leading up to, when well, the two months leading up to, to Prigozhin's death in that fiery plane crash, um, Russia mounted a, um, a hearts and minds campaign, a, a diplomatic campaign in Africa, where they sent Russian officials, um, including people from the military, to many of the countries where Wagner operated and said, look, um, you now talk to us. Wagner are no longer anything else. Uh, they no, no longer are in the picture here. You will deal with us in future going forward. And I think that two-month hiatus between uh, Prigozhin's mutiny and Prigozhin being taken out allowed them the time to do that um, and may also have been part of the, of the strategy. So I think you know, Wagner in some other form will, will continue to live on. Um, but it's likely to be subsumed and you know into into uh, the GRU, which is what they've done in the past with mm. with uh, PMCs that they felt have been uh, not entirely keeping with the Kremlin line or operating as as they should be. Interesting. Have you tried the Jack Carr Hooten Young Warrior Proof Whiskey? If not, I highly recommend it. If you don't know Hooten Young, check them out at hootenyoung.com. It was started by Norm Hooten and Tim Young and born of a love of whiskey and cigars. If Norm Hooten sounds familiar, it may be because you recognize the name from the film Black Hawk Down, where Delta Force operator Hoot was portrayed by Eric Bana. You might have caught two references to Hooten Young in the Terminal List Amazon Prime video series. It's the whiskey James, Reese, and Boozer are drinking in episode one. You can't fake aged whiskey. My Jack Carr Hooten Young collaboration is aged 16 years. It's 125 proof and bottled straight from the barrel. This Jack Carr warrior-proof American whiskey turned out better than I could have possibly imagined. As Norm says, Hooten Young was created to help folks slow down, bond with the people around them, and remember those who are no longer here. Go to hootenyoung.com and get your hands on a bottle today. That's H-O-O-T-E-N-Y-O-U-N-G.com. And uh, in your report, uh, the gray zone here, use the term criminal entrepreneurs. And, uh, and I love that, mm. I love that term, but there's uh, there was the relationship 
just it's beyond organized crime with with the Kremlin. So it's a very interesting relationship. And then how that evolved from the end of the Cold War, uh, let's say from 1991. And you talk about it in the in the report. But so what set the stage, let's say 1991 to 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002, and when Putin really comes to power, that set the condition for this, what I view as a nexus of private governmental criminal type mm. consortium that we're dealing with today. And is that the model we can expect to be dealing yeah. with for the next decade, two decades? I think, I mean, I think, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but I think that out of the the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had this immersion, uh, sort of emergence of all these various um, criminal groups and criminal actors, the oligarchs themselves. Um, and today you have what, what uh, you know, some, some have described as effectively a mafia state with Putin, the boss, who is so inextricably tied into everything that, you know, if Putin one day were to be removed, would the system, I mean, there's a question about, would it actually hold together? Um, because almost every meaningful decision involves him at some or other way. I mean, he's, he's the central figure in this web of, of activity. Um, and I think that's very true for people like uh, Prigozhin who try to get rich in in, uh, in that period. You know, they developed a relationship with Putin. Putin himself moved in the same circles. You know, these were two guys. Putin was the KGB operative. Uh, Prigozhin was the street thug turned hot dog deal- dealer. Uh, but they moved in circles where they came into contact with the organized crime groups that were evolving and growing in St. Petersburg at the time. And, you know, for a long time, those criminal groups were very important to keeping the Russian state going, to funding, for instance, you know, when when Putin was uh, still in, you know, as an official in, in St. Petersburg, um, you know, funding the activities of local governments and shoring up, you know, under Yeltsin, uh, you know, shoring up uh, the, the Russian state in many ways. Um, and they, they worked their way and wormed their way into, into the state and into society and into the economy um, in such a way that they became you know, the thing that was holding it together. Under Putin, that role reversed, though, and they have now become beholden to Putin. Putin essentially will turn a blind eye to those criminal groups, you know, and the, and the thugs of the 1990s have now morphed into businessmen. You know, they have some degree of respectability. Um, you know, the, the levels of violence that you saw in in Russia in the 1990s through to the early 2000s have all but faded away. You know, um, I mean, the violence was was incredible. You know, numbers of car bombings, assassinations. You know, the the cemeteries packed on weekends with gangster funerals. Um, and there's this uneasy truce that's, that's, that's settled in where, you know, Putin will allow these groups to operate um, as long as they do the bidding of the Russian state. And somehow there's a benefit to the Russian state. And, you know, they keep the, the violence to a minimum. They do what they're told and they can keep going. Um, and that's, you know, that's how they operate today. So he, for all intents and purposes, has become uh, the... Capo di Titi Capo, the you know the boss of all bosses. Yeah, and uh, with 
Prigozhin's death and this morph of of Wagner. Uh, I think the, mm. the the gray zone here is either the gray zone or in the uh, the video on the website that uh, um, kind of uh, gives a summary of the the gray zone here. Talks about the uh, 2022 in July 2022 CNN report that Russia is plundering gold in Sudan to boost the Ukrainian war effort. Mm. Um, so how effective? was that as we're sending the United States is sending untold billions to, to Ukraine. They're supplementing the, uh, Russia is supplementing their war effort with these different, um, uh, through illicit networks. One of them being, uh, gold from Sudan. Um, how, how effective was that? And does it, does it continue today? Yeah, I think, well, I, I'm, at this stage, it would be you know, almost impossible to move gold out of Sudan with the you know, effectively civil war that's going raging there again. But um, you know, I think that I think the quantities of gold, and there's some debate around you know gold and diamonds moving from Sudan, and what Wagner could actually have done with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, gold certainly um, it's it's easy to melt down. It's easy to move it, or relatively easy to move it into legitimate trade. Uh, particularly if you've got links as a number of the Russian shelf companies and some of the Russian mining companies do in places like Dubai, uh, you know, to to move that. But when it comes to diamonds, it gets really, really difficult to move those into the international system. Um, so, yeah, how much gold did they really get? Um, you know, that that remains an open question. I think they were hoping that over time they could probably move a lot more, but I think that their movements have become a lot more restricted. You know, there are fewer planes moving out, uh, moving around. Uh, where they can fly to has become increasingly restricted. Um, you know, so is that helping? I mean, I think that it's an, an avenue that Russia is going to to proceed to try and exploit, um, but they need access to so much more. I mean, this war is costing you know, enormous amounts of money. I mean, they've just raised the defense budget by 60%. Um, you know, heaven knows how they're actually going to find the funds to to to, to do that. Um, so I, my, my personal feeling is I think that their efforts in, in Sudan were a bit of a mixed bag in terms of what they got out. Yeah. And prior to this, this summer and Prigozhin's death, uh, when this report came out February 2023, those first, let's say, um, year, year and a half of the the war in Ukraine. Um, did that war effort hinder Wagner operations in Africa? Did it slow down what they were trying to accomplish pre-Ukraine invasion? Yeah, very much so, because I think that, you know, I mean, many of the, the Wagner fighters, the, the core that have been based in Africa, I think at one stage there were around 5,000 of them. Um, and again, you know, people who were quite skilled, these were not prisoners who've been recruited who are now being sent off as, as cannon fodder into the sort of meat grinder of Bakhmut. But, you know, these were, were some of the most experienced Wagner fighters. And um, they, uh, yeah, many of them were recalled. Operations were scaled down significantly. Um, there was obviously growing pressure. You know, Wagner had gone from the shadowy organization uh, for, for much of its existence to becoming something with an identity, you know, they opened offices in St. Petersburg. Uh, you know, ironically, they had sort of white uh, paper mache type doves floating in the lobby of this building uh, you know, as a symbol of peace. Um, but opening their own offices, Prigozhin had emerged, you know, as as this key figure, and you know, more and more 
Wagner operatives were being identified and sanctioned. Um, and in some way that, you know, I mean, that had uh, an impact on, on curtailing their activities um, and really slowing down what they'd been able to do in, in Africa. Yeah. And man, I wanted to also ask you about, cause they're such fascinating individuals and case studies about Victor Boat, Bout, and uh, I'm going to totally yeah. butcher this name, and uh, Konstantin Yarfachenko, the uh, former aviator and uh, cocaine smuggler. Um, both those two guys now released that are cited here in the in the Gray Zone report, but uh, Victor Bout in, yeah. in particular, but uh, uh, Yarsho, man, I'm going to mess up the name, but the the aviator and, yeah. uh, and cocaine smuggler as well. Like, um, how do they play into all of this? Yeah, so, I mean, I think what was so Victor Bout um, is a former Russian mercenary. In many ways, you know, Victor Bout was the pioneer of, of Russian mercenary operations in Africa um, and was involved in, you know, as an arms dealer, um, you know, providing, or not mercenary, arms dealing operations, providing weapons to various conflicts, uh, you know, very heavily involved in Liberia uh, and the DRC um, and, you know, had, and so eventually ended up supplying weapons globally. And these were weapons that he brought up, uh, you know, again, one of these, these criminal entrepreneurs, to use that term, who emerged out of the, the 1990s collapse of the Soviet Union, um, buying up weapons cheaply from military bases across the Soviet Union. I mean, this was a time where there was literally a free fall and if you had enough money you could probably buy a nuclear weapon uh you know you could buy tanks you could buy helicopters you could buy whatever you wanted to for next to nothing um and he took advantage of that and moved these weapons into into africa um and you know fueled various conflicts here and around the world was eventually after many years uh arrested in thailand and uh extradited to the United States where he was convicted, served jail time, and then was released uh, in this prisoner in the prisoner swap uh, or prisoner swap uh, with Russia. Um, and has since gone on to become a politician and was recently elected sort of one of the uh, or to, to um, I, if I speak in a correction, but I think a lower, fairly low house of the Russian Duma, the parliament. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's become this influential figure um, who has, you know, said on a number of occasions that Russia needs to get more and more involved in in Africa, um, and you know, he sort of epitomizes that that kind of of criminal entrepreneur. You know, as does the the pilot who was you know arrested. Uh, charged uh, in connection with with a cocaine smuggling operation. I noticed you yeah. didn't say his name either. Yeah, I, I, some, <laughs> sometimes I will try not to say. That's the yeah. best. Yeah, him. Yeah. No, fascinating. I mean, they're, yeah, they're almost like guy. characters out of a, out of a novel. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you know, the thing, the thing for me, and I think, I think part of the appeal of the Wagner group and, and so many of these people is even if you wrote this in a novel, and I know, I know you've touched on it in your most recent book, but if you wrote some of this, this stuff, this craziness, you probably have to tone it down because your readers are going, nah, this just, it's, you know, it doesn't work. It's just too much. I mean, you know, you've got a guy like Prigozhin who, 
one of the moves the Russians or that the Kremlin did to to try and embarrass him uh, was they staged this raid on on his house. Um, you know, after this was now after the after the attempt to to march on Moscow. And they seized all kinds of stuff. And you had this guy who was living in this you know, enormous mansion with this kind of kitsch gilt furniture. You had you know, a gilt-framed picture of severed human heads on his wall, uh, possibly from Syria. He had um, a 50 cal in the bedroom. I don't know why you would have a 50 cal in the bedroom, but hey, AK-47s, <laughs> tons of ammo, gold bars. But then the best part was... He had a cupboard full of wigs. And, you know, these wigs were wigs that he used in disguises um, when he traveled around the world. And he'd dress up as a Libyan general or he'd dress up as, you know, some kind of other low-level Russian official. And some of that tied into his paranoia. But, you know, the disguises mm-hmm. themselves were pretty ridiculous. Uh, you know, it's kind of this, these like really shaggy sort of cheap wigs that just, you, I mean, you buy them in a Halloween store kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I think one of the strokes of genius in trying to to undermine Prigozhin's, you know, um, reputation as sort of this hero of Ukraine in some ways, and this self-styled creation, was releasing photographs of him in disguise. Mm. Um, you know, uh, similarly later, I mean, there were, you know, other sort of, uh, you know, just kind of, more and more of these pictures of him in different types of disguises doing the rounds. And it made him something of a laughing stock. Um, so, you know, but, you know, how do you, you know, a character like that, you know, Utkin himself, you know, with these SS tattoos and, you know, um, apparently others saying, showing sort of German oak leaf tattoos, um, you know, you've got, um, you know, uh, the the sort of functionaries that operated for them in various countries, you know, some of them are like sort of internet geeks, not exactly military types. Um, and then you've got this, you know, the spread of these organizations who are creating political mayhem around the world, um, involved in catering contracts. I mean, it's the kind of stuff you just can't make up, really. Yeah, <laughs> it is absolutely yeah, just, fascinating. Yeah. Um, and uh, before I let you go, I have a couple more things I wanted to, to touch on. Um, mm. And China in Africa. So we've talked a lot about about Russia and Africa, Wagner in particular in Africa, organized crime, mm. illicit networks. Um, what is, since our last conversation, or where do you see uh, things going as far as China in Africa and their goals uh, for the mm. future there? Well, I think, I mean, I think, you know, China has been building up uh, relations across Africa and has had relations across Africa for a very long time. Um, What, uh, and, you know, as part of its Belt and Road Initiative, it's been investing in projects um, across the continent. I think that China sees opportunities here with much of the world's attention now diverted to Ukraine uh, to expand some of those efforts. Um, You've seen, you know, big road building projects in a number of countries Again, sort of interest in extractives. Um, I think it's been interesting, actually, just as a sort of segue away from that, but to see how, because often Russia and China are seen as having um, similar desires, similar political and diplomatic desires in Africa, but how that the instability that's been caused to some degree by the Wagner Group um, you know, has really had something of an impact on, on China. Um, and has put China in a very difficult position in some ways with, you know, with some of the countries where they're trying to 
to operate and created you know this volatility i mean we're seeing it now you know with um you know beyond sort of wagner's role but you know with the coup in uh or the, the recent coups that have been happening across the region many of them in areas where there are extractors where there are gold mines where there's diamond where there's timber um and that sort of evolution but i think that you know china's expansion in africa is going to continue i think that you know china is, is uh i think that china at the moment though is in a difficult position with its own economy at home taking a beating um so that again would would have an impact um but i think ultimately what this does is it puts uh you know russia and to a lesser degree china um against the traditional powers within the continent so you know the united states um and france more more particularly when you're talking about west africa and its former mm-hmm. colonies there yeah and since we last spoke or since you last since your uh, killing for profit came out um what has evolved as far as the um issue of protecting rhinos in uh in south africa in particular um what's been going on in that front um so i mean it's i i think that we're in encouraging phase in the sense that rhino populations appear to be growing again um but obviously from a fairly low base um you know given the 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 uh impact that poaching has had over the years i think the real problem in many places uh, you know south africa is an example um because it is still home to you know most african rhinos um is the level of organized crime which we touched on in the beginning you know and how organized crime networks are metastasizing they're becoming embedded within uh communities there seems to be no real law enforcement strategy you know there's some really incredible cops and prosecutors out there who who trying to do work and trying to take down some of these syndicates but they just don't have the political support they don't have the you know the uh financial support they don't have the you know the people that they need to be able to do this um and i think that we're at quite a critical juncture as a country um you know in in trying to sort of tackle organized crime and i think that that has an impact on the kruger national park for instance which is you know uh you've been there you know it's it's a park the size of israel um you know it's this enormous uh uh conservation area um where you know so many rhinos are clustered and it's the one that's borne the brunt of, of the poaching crisis um the problem is there's only so much the rangers in the park can do and particularly when you have you know rapidly urbanizing um areas around the park you know uh cities and towns expanding um and where you have a law enforcement and the government's void that allows these these criminal networks to take a hold um and you know the, unfortunately many of the rangers in the park live have to live in those in communities around the park in proximity to criminal syndicates they threaten their families are threatened um and you have this knock on effect today where you have you know a very high corruption problem um you know and i've said recently i think the corruption within the park and within other parks is probably a graver threat now than than poaching um so there have to be and I, i'm encouraged to see if there are efforts underway with within the kruger national park for 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 one example to try and address those those issues of corruption to try and rebuild a range of core um you know to try and reprofessionalize them um you know i i know there's actually been some uh you know some some um 
new training uh, training programs that have been developed um, to try and look at issues. You know, how do you deal with, and I think this is something, you know, you guys in the SEALs have had to, have to deal with too, is how do you find the right people? How do you find people with integrity? How do you find people um, who've got the right approach? Uh, and, you know, that, that's that been a very real, and how do you, you know, how do you develop um that the, the trust levels that exist between you know people within a, a an organization like that where there's been rapid mil- militarization over a period of time um you know find the people that you can work with in the field because unfortunately you have a situation in some cases where you're out on patrol you don't know if you can trust the guy behind you the guy in front of you or the guy to the left of you um and that's that is in the longer term going to be a very real challenge so i'm i'm hoping that the people that are there now and and have really innovative ideas can actually turn it around. Yeah, no, it's tough when you have, there's so many leverage points to exert influence on people, especially with families and uh, living in, uh, yeah. in the economy and communities where it's where there's so much money involved uh, and uh, so much corruption involved. It's uh, it mm. is tough. Uh, but speaking of that, uh, South Africa, where you are right now, um, what is the official position of South African government towards both Russia and and China. So we've we've had a an interesting period uh, in terms of our our incredibly messy foreign policy towards <laughs> Russia in particular. Um, you know, South Africa has always had quite close ties to both Russia and China, um, and particularly in a democratic South Africa, a democratic South Africa, you know, dating back to the nineties. Uh, you know, where I think Russia back then saw an opportunity to um, to reopen linkages in Africa, you know, linkages that had um, essentially, you know, fallen apart and stumbled uh, in the dying days of, of the Soviet Union. So South Africa was very key to that. Um, South Africa itself and, you know, the, the uh, ruling African National Congress have a long connection to the Soviet Union, which itself now is being used as an example for, uh, you know, straddling the fence. And in some cases, uh, not from government, but but uh, political parties saying we support Russia. And it's a sort of you know miscalculated misunderstanding, you know, that Russia today is no different than the Soviet Union in the 1980s that supported liberation movements. Um, and the fact that you know you had many of the people the ANC guys who were in exile who went and studied in Russia, many others went and studied in Ukraine at that time, mm. uh, what is, you know, what is now independent Ukraine. So there's this muddying of the waters and there have been, there's been uh, efforts here to try um, and, um, you know, by, by Russian groupings themselves to spread disinformation and to milk that, you know, the Russian embassy has very been pushing for that. But then we get ourselves into this kind of odd mess where we have a Russian ship that docks in Cape Town, and that Russian ship is carrying ammunition. According to the, the official commission of inquiry that came out recently, it was carrying an old order of ammunition for special forces, which was being delivered. The U.S. ambassador here said that there were weapons loaded from South Africa. There's a lot of debate about whether South Africa could have loaded weapons. We don't manufacture any kinds of calibers of ammunition that would really be uh, be capable of being used in, in most Russian weapons. We don't, you know, manufacture our arms industry doesn't really manufacture stuff that would be of you know particular value or that would suit Russian the Russian the current Russian military. Um, 
The Saiban government adamantly denies that anything was loaded. There were simply things were offloaded. Uh, the U.S. embassy has gone very quiet and, you know, say that they will no longer comment on this issue. There was a lot of pressure at one stage for the ambassador to sort of put up or shut up and show his evidence of what he said. Um, so it led to a very uncomfortable period. I think there's an easing of tensions to some degree now. Um, and, you know, if South Africa was supplying weapons of some kind, that warning shot has been fired, um, and hopefully that won't happen again. Um, South Africa's ties with China, again, you know, longstanding uh, relationship, and both, uh, you know, China and, and Russia are involved in, in BRICS, uh, this partnership of, of, uh, of, of countries to which South Africa is also part. Iran has just been admitted as, as a member. Um, and, you know, it's, so there are those relationships. And it's this, I, I think that, you know, the tensions, the diplomatic tensions that have existed in the past with the U.S., um, particularly during the Jacob Zuma years, you know, became heightened again with this, the, the docking of the ship um, but hopefully there's some kind of cooling off period here. But I think, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot of confusion about what, what is South Africa's foreign policy? You know, we had our, our president leading this, uh, bizarre, um, delegation of African leaders to try and persuade, uh, Zelensky and then Putin to, you know, embark on peace talks. Mm -hmm. Zelensky was polite. Putin was, uh, essentially just, uh, you know, put them down and put them in the spot and said, you know, that, uh, you know, effectively indicated that he had no real interest in discussing any kind of peace talks. Mm. Um, so it's a strange pandering to Russia, which doesn't make a lot of sense objectively to me, um, you know, take away the historical linkages. You know, our biggest trading partner is the United States. Um, Russia trade, Russia's trade with Africa makes up a fraction. Mm. Uh, of that, so it seems to be, you know, somewhat short-sighted in the in 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 the longer term. That's putting it mildly, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the. It's interesting because that's when you think about the corruption and uh, and uh, pressure yeah. points, and uh, which actually leads me into one thing I wanted to ask you about. Something you recently posted on X: human trafficking remains the most pervasive criminal market in Africa. And that's something that we're talking about more and more here in the United States. A film called The Sound of Freedom uh, recently. Uh, came out, hit theaters, and uh, there's just more talk of this than there has been in the past. Mm -hmm. But uh, that, that human trafficking, those, those syndicates that are, that are moving people um, in and out of South Africa, mm -hmm. um, what's, uh, what is your take on how that's evolved over the last couple of decades? Well, I, I, I mean, I think, I think human trafficking uh, as an issue in Africa is, you know, across the continent, you're finding that it's, it's one of you know one of the the big issues, sort of human trafficking, human smuggling, and um, you know I think I think that a lot of that has to do you know the extreme case where you have people being uh, trafficked into sort of slave labor conditions on farms. We've seen that in uh, in South Africa. You know you've also got cases of people being trafficked into sex work, but I think there's also the you know the smuggling side is probably much bigger, where uh, because of you know the the current state of the global economy um you know the collapse of so many regional economies you see so many migrants moving around the world migrants moving into europe uh, migrants moving into the united states migrants moving across africa 
Um, you know, we've had a lot of migrants moving into South Africa over the years, and there've been rising sort of tensions as a result locally uh, because of that, and sort of claims, many of which um, I think uh, we can safely say are untrue. That you know, you've got these migrants in in South Africa who sort of taking jobs and leaving people unemployed. I think it's a lot more complex than that. But I, I think that that's something that's not going to go away. And the smugglers themselves, you know, um, you know, you've seen these horrific uh, cases in North Africa where, uh, you know, smugglers overload boats and the boats sink and hundreds of people die. Um, you know, the um, the guys that are moving people across borders into South Africa, um, and some of them rape and attack uh, women who are crossing those borders. This was particularly. Uh, bad when uh, Zimbabwe's economy was in meltdown several, you know, many years ago. Um, and, you know, you had these guys sort of lurking under the bridges who would provide safe passage, but it would also rob and rape people coming across. Um, but I think that this is a problem that's only going to get worse. Uh, you know, if you're seeing, I mean, I can see it here is the, you know, the kind of impacts of, you know, changing climates in, 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 in the world. Uh, if you look at Kenya and the, the you know, in Kenya and East Africa with uh, drought, drought after drought over the last several years, which are having a massive you know, impact, migration is going to become, you know, and, and smuggling and, you know, uh, trafficking of people is going to become, you know, one of our, one of our greatest challenges moving forward. Yeah. And uh, before I let you go, the gray zone, what, do you hope people take away from this and whether that's uh, citizens who can vote or that mm. is uh, politicians who read this or um, uh, bureaucrats who are in, in positions to do things about uh, uh, policies that might have an effect on Russia's relationship with Africa. What are the main takeaways from the gray zone that, uh, that you want people to, to walk away with? I think the main thing and what we were trying to do there was to look at, you know, the group um, as a criminal organization that straddles this kind of murky gray world between, you know, being a PMC or the, uh, you know, one that is tied straight into the, into the Russian military. But the emergence of these kinds of groups, I mean, Wagner itself is a very unique beast. You know, this is a, a mercenary outfit that is tied to a government, inextricably tied to that government. Uh, they may have paid their own soldier, you know, their own soldiers. They may have paid their own people, but what they did was done in coordination with the GRU and the Russian government, and that leads to the influence operations, the political influence operations, the damage that that can do, uh, you know, to democracies. Um, and, you know, the emergence of that kind of an organization in this current world, um, particularly given how divided and how fragmented we're becoming and how more insular we're becoming globally. And these, you know, these shifting sort of tectonic plates uh, that are occurring on an international stage with new powers emerging and new, uh, you know, new levels of influence. You know, what does this hold for us in the longer term? You know, this is not a PMC in the kind of, Blackwater-style PMC. This is an entirely new thing with significant economic, political, and military, uh, you know, military um, experience. Um, and so I, I think that what we were trying to flag there was, you know, how do you deal with something like this in the longer term and the, and the need to deal with that before it becomes 
something that spirals out of control. I mean, you know, as I've said a couple of times, I mean, you know, this this is James Bond villain stuff. You know, it's kind of like Spectre or, you know, one of those kinds of organizations. Maybe not quite as extreme. We haven't got to, you know, secret bunkers under the sea and, you know, that kind of thing. But but it's kind of moving in that line where, you know, you have, and I think there are a lot of questions, again, about, you know, the privatization of, military capabilities um you know you you see for instance you know starlink there's been a lot written about that recently and you know starlink being the comms for the conflict in ukraine and starlink you know having this reach that even the u.s military doesn't have so i think there's a lot of debate that we have about these kinds of actors but but wagner was was a group on its own and i think we might not ever see a group like that emerge again but i think that Russia has learned that with the right controls, and if you can keep your influence going, if you can keep the military side going, you can create more groups like this and, and use them for your political and economic benefit. The difference is you just don't need a maverick like Prigozhin, uh, who is ultimately going to go off the deep end and you know become uh, something of a problem. Yeah. Do you ever worry about, as a journalist, uh, living where you, you do, how much... Do you worry about your safety? Is that something that is uh, is a constant concern? Does it take up a small bit of bandwidth? Mm. Do you take precautions? Um, yeah, no, I, I take precautions. I mean, I, I think anyone living in South Africa, given the crime rate that we have, worries about the security. I my, you know, my neighbor got hit the other night. Four guys in a car pulled up behind her as she's driving into a driveway. Uh, you know, all four armed. She's got her kids in the car. You know, took cell phones, wallets, whatever, um, you know, violent crime is is on the increase. And I think that, you know, what's, what's concerning, you know, particularly for, you know, people in my line of work or for journalists or whatever is um, assassinations are becoming more and more common. You know, we, as an organization, we documented 140 um, assassinations across politics, uh, organized crime, you know, personal uh, sort of marital dispute type assassinations where you hire a hitman to take out a spouse uh, to assassinations in the transport sector, which is kind of a big thing as well here. Um, and that's extraordinary. You know, I mean, 40 of those assassinations we classed as political assassinations. So low, you know, municipal councillors at a local level, people, whistleblowers who blowing the, the whistle on organized crime and corruption. Um, so I think that gives everyone a degree of pause, you know, uh, yeah, particularly in a country where, you know, as I've said, 70 murders a day um, and, you know, 15 percent of murders get get sold. Um, I think you have to you know, take precautions. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was uh, what 200,000 people murdered in South Africa over the past decade with a murder rate continuing to climb. I think that was something that yeah. uh, was yeah. tweeted recently. Yeah. Man, well, mm. well, stay as safe as you can out there. And I hope I can link Thanks. up with you maybe in uh, Johannesburg and share a, share a pint or two. It's been too long since I've been to Africa. Um, but what's next yeah, for you? Are you working on yeah. another working on another book, or what's uh, what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, a couple of projects. I'm I'm mulling another book idea. We we spoke about this last time I was on the show. You were somewhat encouraging. Thank you. Um, yeah, so mulling. We've got a bunch of other projects. We're doing quite a few now, looking specifically at some of the the organized crime networks that are involved in South Africa. Um, illegal mining was one thing, but I think 
I think the issue that's causing, you know, is what we what we term as sort of attacks on infrastructure. So, you know, the the looting of copper cable, you know, uh, traffic lights being cut down for the cable and for the metal. Um, you know, guys going down into mines. You've got these heavily armed groups. Um, so all of that is, you know, we're at a we're at the cusp of, um, I think, a, you know, a very significant time in our history. Limited time to turn things. Uh, there's some good people in the National Prosecuting Authority and police, as I've said, but the direction is wrong. There's no strategy. There's no. It's clear that crime and organized crime is not an election issue. We're going into an election next year. Already, you're seeing, you know, political assassinations going up. Um, you know, we need to look at this quite strategically. And how do we do we actually find a way of turning this around? We've done it before in the 1990s when we had an upsurge of organized crime. So it's not something that is completely hopeless, but it needs focus. It needs direction. So I think the work going forward now is to push for that and to try and help develop you know strategies that can achieve that. Well, thank you for all all you do and for your work at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. All the these links will be in the show notes below. People should follow you on on X and uh, the social channels. Pick up Killing for Profit, and it only makes us uh, you know more inform a more informed citizenry to be uh, be following you and more aware of what's going on in the world. So thank you for all you do and putting yourself at risk really for all of us and for giving me all sorts of ideas for my novels. I sincerely appreciate it. I'll keep giving more. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks, Jack. Appreciate you having me on. All right. Take keep care. Writing. I'll see you soon. I've been a fan of Black Rifle Coffee Company since their inception. I love when veterans leave the military and pursue their passion. In this case, coffee. The coffee is fantastic. And as an added benefit, the company is built on quality, patriotism, and giving back to the veteran and first responder communities. I've been a subscriber to the BRCC Coffee Club for years and love it. My favorite is Silencer Smooth. It gets delivered every single month. The Black Rifle Coffee Club. Being part of the club gives you the power to elevate your coffee experience to the next level. The Black Rifle Coffee Club puts you in the driver's seat. You pick the texture and the roast you want the frequency you want it delivered, and the quantity. You get to completely personalize your club orders, ensuring that your favorite coffee is sent to your door exactly how you want it, when you want it. Right now, Black Rifle Coffee is offering an exclusive opportunity for new coffee club members. Join today and enjoy 30% off your first order when you use the discount code DANGERCLOSE at checkout. That's right, 30% off just for being a part of our growing coffee community. Remember to use the discount code DANGERCLOSE at checkout. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, what am I wearing right here? I'm glad you asked. This is my recent collaboration with Ball and Buck. I've known Mark Bowman, founder of Ball and Buck, for over a decade now. And you can find this on my website, officialjackcar.com. Click on Shop in the upper right-hand corner. And there are a few things on here. Long live the Brotherhood right there. And there just might be a little washing tag in here that has the Second Amendment on it. I love those little details. So find that on my website. And... Rocking the G-Shock today. If you've been following me for a while or have read my novels, you know that I am a watch person. But I'll tell you what, in the SEAL teams, getting issued this G-Shock is probably one of the best pieces of kit that we were ever issued in the SEAL teams. And the Casio G-Shock, sometimes, it just gets it done. 
and that's what you need. So uh, let's see what else. Sig. All right. So this right here is a P320. And right there. So if you go to Sig Firearms, Custom Works, Featured Builds, you can get this one. So it'll be under Jack Car right there, Featured Builds, and you can build one just like this. So be sure and check out and from headstamp publishing right here small arms of world war ii photographs by james rupley who you may know from the vickers guides and the vickers guides absolutely amazing those are my first stop when i'm researching the different firearms for my novel so check out this one right here it's a new one headstamppublishing.com and what's over here jocko pre-workout and so I don't know what Jocko is trying to tell me by sending me four of these things, but go to Jocko Fuel and just type that in. Website will pop up. Bunch of different flavors here. This is sour peach flavored right here. There's four of them in here, and there's also a watch. Look at that. And Jocko, I was up early this morning, but I wasn't working out. I was writing very quiet at uh, those early hours of the morning. So uh, very nice touch here with the Timex, and if you follow Jocko, you will know that he's probably been up for uh, about 15 hours as of right now, this recording. But check out what he's got going on with Jocko Fuel and, uh, of course, his podcast and everything else he has going on. All right, that is it. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Julian Rademeyer, you can pick up his book, Killing for Profit, and follow him on Twitter, now X, at Julian Rademeyer, and that's J-U-L-I-A-N-R-A-D-E-M-E-Y-E-R. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. Officialjackcar.com is the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.